Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu/podcast Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to visit Omaha, Nebraska to interview hometown indie rock band Cursive. Plus, we'll take a look at the new albums from Coldplay and Weezer. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. That is ACDC, a uh, band that I highlighted, I lauded a few weeks ago on this show as a one-note wonder. That's a good thing sometimes. In the case of ACDC, it certainly is. But now, as our producer Jason Saldana points out, they are also a one-store wonder. <laughs> little did we know, Jim, that uh, ACDC would have something in common with Journey, Genesis, and the Eagles, and now they do. They are all selling their latest albums exclusively through Walmart. At least that's the report out of the Wall Street Journal that ACDC has contracted with Walmart to release its next album, its first in eight years, due out in the fall with Walmart. In the same way that uh, Journey has just done, Genesis has released a three-DVD set exclusively through Walmart, and the Eagles, most famously last year, released their first album in three decades, uh, Long Road to Eden, uh, exclusively through Walmart, a deal that ended up netting them three million plus sales. Now, why are bands doing this? In the case of the Eagles, it's 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 pretty explicit. They didn't have a record company. They could make a lot more money by selling the record directly to Walmart and and getting a much larger return per sale. I'm having a little difficulty with this one though, Jim. ACDC is still contracted to Columbia Records, so their cut of this isn't going to be nearly as huge as the Eagles. I think yeah, what that's... they're opting for here is the fact that Walmart is, you know, 
the, the biggest record seller in the United States still, and that they will get massive publicity and shelf space there. So they're, they're basically saying our audience is the Walmart audience. I, I guess. You know, you go down to Walmart, you pick up some Chaw, you pick up a shotgun, you get your ACDC. <laughs> but Columbia's not commenting, and Walmart's not commenting. Greg, we're just going to have to look into this a little harder when we uh, get around to reviewing the new ACDC. I know you've marked that date on your calendar. <laughs> Everybody wants to be Radiohead, the latest uh, artist trying the uh, much-vaunted method of releasing something on the net and asking people to pay whatever the heck they feel like, is uh, none other than Greg Gillis, a.k.a. Girl Talk. He was a guest on our show not too many months ago, and he's going to be following up his uh, mega smash underground release Night Ripper, with a new record called Feed the Animals. It's going to be a 55-minute album that apparently is going to contain more than 300 samples. Gillis, if you recall, uh, takes hooks from all sorts of places all over the charts, uh, often very, very well-known songs, but not very obvious parts of those songs, and he creates a new kind of pop music pastiche with these ingredients. There are some copyright <laughs> problems yeah. with this because, obviously, you have 300 samples on a, on a 60-minute record. You haven't cleared them all, but I think this is kind of an ingenious way to do it. You know, pay what you want. You know, you don't have to get give anything to get his new music, and, and nobody can accuse him of getting filthy rich in the process and come after him for royalties, although I think it's only a matter of time before somebody does, don't you? I think uh, there was so much publicity uh, surrounding that last release, Night Ripper. It was sort of under the radar when it came up. By the time he finished touring behind it, uh, everybody knew about it. He was a guest on this show. We, we, he talked very openly about the fact that he's flaunting copyright law, and uh, so far no one had come after him. But I think with this release, uh, he's going after some big names again. I mean, the last album had people like Notorious B.I.G., Madonna, uh, all these big-name acts. Uh, he's going to do more of the same here. It's a higher-profile release. It'll be interesting if somebody comes out with a lawsuit this time and says, wait a minute, you've gone too far. I want a piece of your action, because you know his sales are going to pick up. Anyway, it's due to come out on the net in the next couple of weeks. One, two, one, two, three, ah! Uh. Greg, one item that is uh, curiously missing from the list of goods that are going to be auctioned off at Christie's is James Brown's Hot Pants, although uh, I think you might even bid on that one if it came up. However, much of the other earthly possessions of the Godfather of Soul are going on the auction block to satisfy his estate. Who's going to get the money from this stuff? Not exactly clear. The estate's been a mess since James Brown died last year. All sorts of legal wrangling involving members of the family, uh, adult children, ex-girlfriends, ex-wives, alleged ex-girlfriends, alleged ex-wives, alleged <laughs> children, you name it, okay? Now Christie's is selling a lot of Brown's stuff. On the list to be auctioned off, silver and red rhinestone buckle reading Sex Machine, uh, a tooled belt, I think, that says, We Love You, James, Blues Express, 
Two to three grand for those items. Brown's Yamaha Baby Grand Piano, his Hammond B3 organ, between 15 and 20 estimated prices, okay? Handwritten notes, including some from uh, Presidents Reagan and Bush. Parts of stuff from his South Carolina home. Here's the stuff that really uh, intrigues me, though. All sorts of hair care products. Yeah. Rollers, picks, a dome hair dryer from the salon in his South Carolina home. Amazing. This, this a, man, amazing. I mean, Jim, this man spent more on his hair than some people did on buying houses in their lives. I mean, it's <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, the man had impeccable hair. And uh, the fact that he's giving away some of his hair care products, I mean... I'm a man who knows my afros, let's put it this way. I had yeah, one there in college. You know. You know, I, yeah, yeah. I'm intrigued by you what would, kind of you hair want, care products. What would James Brown's pick be worth it to you for Father's Day you know, if someone wanted to? If I had to... James Brown's pick in college, I would have been the, <laughs> the coolest guy on campus. Let's put it that way. What I want to know, besides the hot pants, where are the rims of those tires of that car that he drove and drove when he's trying to get away from the cops? Yeah, right. And where's the cape? I think the cape man's got it. Danny Ray, the man who put the cape on uh, James Brown at all those shows, has got the cape now, Jim. Let's give him a ring. Listen, the Crab. been watching television at all in the last uh, couple of weeks you've probably seen or heard that song that is Coldplay with uh, the title track or part of the title track from its new album Viva La Vida or Death and All His Friends that's the track Viva La Vida and uh, they are performing that track on a commercial for a certain uh, product that we shall not name (laughs) but that is ubiquitous Let's put it that way. And Coldplay wants to be ubiquitous this year. They are launching an all-out assault to make sure that you are aware that they have a new album out there. Fourth album, as I mentioned, the title is rather cumbersome, Viva La Vida or Death and All His Friends. It follows up three albums, all of which went multi-platinum, one of the biggest-selling bands of the 21st century and uh, the band that has proclaimed itself uh, the biggest band in the world. At least they were doing that on their last record. They said, we want to be right up there with you 2 and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and whoever else you can name. We want to be the biggest band in the world. That has been their ambition. With X and Y, they started to get a little bit more progressive in terms of the sound. With this record, they have blown that out even further. They've hired Brian Eno, the famed producer who has worked with bands like Talking Heads and U2 in the past, and and Jim's personal hero. So, uh, (laughs) Jim, you will no doubt be heartened to to know that uh, he's working with Coldplay. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what he does with them. But before we talk about this new album, let's hear a track from it. This is one of those patented Eno productions. And you can hear it on this particular track. It's called 42 from the new Coldplay record on Sound Opinions. Those who are dead are not dead. They're just living in my head. And since I fell for that spell, I am living there as well. Short 
that is a song called 42 from the fourth Coldplay album, Viva La Vida. Uh, Greg, you know, <laughs> Coldplay hires Brian Eno to produce them. I think that the obvious reference point is Eno's work with U2. Coldplay's made no bones about the fact that it wants to be the chart-topping arena rock dominating combination of U2 and Radiohead. Mm -hmm. And so they go to U2's most celebrated producer. But he isn't doing what he did on Octung Baby or Zuropa, the most successful Eno U2 productions. When I interviewed Eno several times around the making of those records, he quite proudly boasted, and The Edge confirmed to me, that his role was to fly in every couple of weeks, listen to everything U2 had recorded, and then erase anything that sounded too much like U2, much to the consternation of the giant <laughs> corporation, Island Records, and all the people around U2 who just wanted albums that sounded like U2. These days, they're getting them again, but back then, U2 was really forcing itself to go out in brave new directions. Mm -hmm. Coldplay isn't really doing that. They're not get, whether, whether it's Eno's fault or Coldplay's fault, uh, you know, for one thing, Coldplay is a much more conventional folk song piano ballad type of rock band. Eno's worked with those before, too. James is probably the closest group that he's ever worked with compared to Coldplay. Mm -hmm. There's no Talking Heads, no David Bowie, no Roxy Music, no U2 super invention on Eno's part. Mainly he comes in, he puts Martin's sometimes whiny tenor a little further back in the mix. He uh, it layers on some ethnic rhythms, uh, polyrhythms, world beat rhythms, and he basically hoses down everything with some translucent gauze synthesizer, okay? <laughs> Otherwise, it sounds a lot like Coldplay. I I'm shocked because 2005's X and Y was a much more inventive album. They were thanking Noi in the liner notes. Yeah. I just played Noi a couple of weeks ago here when we buried Klaus Dinger, uh, famous Kraftwerk peers of the Krautrock era. This sounds a lot like a Coldplay record. None of that's bad. I mean, I, I like their songs. As far as big, anthemic, arena, piano, ballad, modern, kind of Pink Floyd, atmospheric gauze goes, <laughs> uh, nobody's really doing it better. But boy, it's not reinventing the wheel. No, they're definitely not. And uh, I, too, thought they may push it a little further, especially given what they were trying on X and Y. X and Y, a record that is looked upon by many of the fans, is kind of a failure, not being the, the, the true Coldplay record. And That's uh, my favorite, though. And, 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 and to my mind, yes, it pushed the envelope and made them a more interesting band. And I think the colors on this record are by far the most interesting they've ever had. There's a three-dimensional quality to the sound. You know, you've got those... Uh, guitars in the in the middle distance and you've got those voices background away on the horizon and then you've got some percussion up front so there's a sense of this sound field playing out in front of your ears and it's it's fascinating to listen to on a nice set of speakers so we So here we have this arena rock band that's making all these little subtle colorations in the mixes, thanks to Eno. 
But in terms of the heart of the band, it's still about that voice. It's still about that piano. It's still about Chris Martin and then these other guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he's a sweet guy. Chris Martin seems like a nice man. He's a very nice guy. I've interviewed him. He doesn't know? have a whole lot to say. No. The lyrics on this song, you know, it's all about death. But, well, you know, did you just catch the lyrics in that yeah. song we just played? He rhymes dead and head. He yeah. rhymes, uh, you know, well and sell. I mean, he's like, what I are mean, you doing, man? The, 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 these lyrics aren't particularly good. I mean, I don't want to hear Chris Martin pontificate about anything, let alone death. And to my mind, it's all about the sound on this record. The sound is cool. It's not. It's, it's not a great record. It's not nearly as adventurous as a U two Octung Baby or as a Radiohead OK Computer. But as an arena rock album, it's far more subtle and nuanced than most arena rock records are. And from that standpoint, I, I give them a lot of credit. At the same time. It's just a bland kind of arena rock record. You know? It's it's not a buy it record by any means. It's yeah. a burn it. You probably don't even have to go to that trouble because it's going to be coming at you from whatever's left of commercial radio and from uh, those TV commercials we were talking about. It's going to be the background of the summer. There's no doubt about it. I don't think it is going to save the second and third quarters of 2008 for Capitol Records, though. Well, that's what a lot of people are saying, that the, the Capitol needs a blockbuster hit. I, I'll tell you what tracks to burn here. I think uh, the most interesting tracks are these sweet-like uh, songs. 42 that we just played, this Lovers in Japan slash Return of Love track. Yes, these these kind of tracks are interesting. The middle part of that record where they where they do something more interesting with the arrangements. But I think overall it's a, it's a burn it record. It's, a, it's, it's certainly not a buy it. All right, that's a double burn it on the patented Sound Opinions rating scale of buy it, burn it, trash it. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Greg and I will talk with the indie rock quintet Cursive live in their hometown of Omaha, Nebraska. We visited them as they were gearing up to record their next album, and they're playing some songs for us that no one's even heard yet.
You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this is, Mr. Cott, the first time we've taken the show on the road. We are in Omaha at a venue that's really cool called The Waiting Room with a band that got its start in Omaha, Cursive. Welcome to the show, guys. Uh, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Uh, Tim Kasher, Matt McGinn, Ted Stevens, Cornbread Compton, and Nate Lapine on keys. So let's start off with the story of this band. Uh, this is basically a band that uh, has roots going back to your uh, early teenage years, right, Tim, uh, in terms of just playing around this, the, the Omaha scene and, and being a part of the, the club scene here. What was the scene like in, in Omaha when you started out uh, as a teenager playing around here? Uh, it, was, uh, it was great. We, there was a lot of bands that we owe uh, a lot to as far uh, as, far as uh, inspiration is concerned. Matt and I, we picked up guitars and basses when we were about 13 years old. Started playing only covers because I think coming out of the Midwest or not being uh, surrounded by a big city, we weren't, as, we weren't familiar or we were unaware of the fact that bands were out there in our own town that were writing their own songs and you know, doing originals instead of covers and that really blew our mind when we, when we <laughs> realized that kids that were just a few years older than us were writing their own records, so we immediately uh, followed suit. What was a typical uh, set list early on of bad covers? Of covers? And singing. don't spare the embarrassment. Give us the cheesiest stuff on well, that we, list. Well, think, of, think of the worst ones. I mean, it is, you know, it was like R.E.M. and U2 was huge, of course. But. That's not embarrassing. No, I, I know. A, but I was in a band that covered 2112 by Rush. <laughs> <laughs> that's embarrassing. Well, that's impressive, actually. No, but we couldn't play it. It's really right, hard, right. though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was the impetus to start writing? I remember writing early on just, uh, I think, just as an experiment. And I, I would show songs to Matt, but I think we thought it was just kind of, we didn't think much more of it because, again, we felt like there was no outlet for it. Mm. Now, you've been living in L.A. As a, uh, working as a screenwriter, right? Working on your first No, that's play? a polite way to put it. I, I, can't, <laughs> I, I, it's, uh, I wouldn't say... I'd, I'd say working as in um, as a, the way the hobbyist works on a model plane, I suppose. <laughs> okay. But I haven't made any money off of it, so I can't But what I was wondering, job. Tim, is if, you, uh, is if you wanted to be a writer first or a musician... Because your, your songwriting is known, I mean, universally by cursive fans as, as just really sophisticated writing. And you deal with big themes in the songs. We'll talk about a little of that. But, I mean, were you, were you writing prose at the same time as you were writing music? No, I wasn't. I remember I really hated my prose when I was young. <laughs> I thought everything that I wrote, I thought, always came out as a, like a Mickey Spillane novel. <laughs> but uh, there's truth to, truth to that in the sense that I picked up a guitar because I think it was, it was the most immediate thing I could get my hands on. And that's something that's great about pop music and about rock and roll is that you can... It's, it was much more tangible to be able to write a three-minute rock song instead of writing a, you know, a short stories or a novel or a script. Or, yeah. Before we go too much further, let's, uh, let's get a song out of you guys. You guys are about to go into a recording studio to record a new album, which I believe would be the, what, the sixth studio record from, yeah, uh, from will... Cursive? It's amazing. I've uh, been around 10 years <laughs> and uh, working on your sixth record starting tomorrow. Set it up for us. Uh, what are you guys going to play for us? What's the name of the song? And give us a little background on, on how it was written. Uh, the song is called From the Hips. Uh, it is, I th- if I'm right, I think it's one of the earlier ones we wrote in this writing session. I think one of the first songs that we became, that we, got, we gained the most confidence from as far as feeling like this will definitely go on the record. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I think that these songs are still so new <laughs> for us. It's hard to uh, 
say, I also, to be honest, this whole songwriting process has been a real blur. I can't remember where any of it happened because this is the first time that we've practiced in so many different locations. In the past, I can always, my memory is always in one place, like it was Matt's basement, or it was, uh, you know, uh, we used to practice at my mother's uh, department store in the basement. Uh, and so that's where I know those albums came from, but these, this one's confusing to me. It comes from, it's in L.A. and in Council Bluffs, and it's been all around. So. Bands all spread out. From the hips, from Cursive, on Sound Opinions. the lights and ride away I'm at my worst when I'm at my best I'm at my best when I'm trying to look and think and talk and sing and read and write like all the rest We're all just trying to play our roles In a play that runs ad nauseum And I hate this damn enlightenment We were better off as animals Right! We're at our best when it's from our hips It just feels good and that's no sin It's the only way to feel alive The closest thing to being born again When baby comes a job well done A roll in the hay, a roll around the sun When it's from our lips From our lips We cause a rift And this cold world Is falling in From babble To gossip blocks Our words have formed A death sentence And I wish that we had Never taught Our hips Sad and
From the hips, that's cursive from the new album, as yet unnamed. New yes, album? as yet un- unnamed, yeah. Uh, Tim Casher, Matt McGinn, Ted Stevens, Cornbread Compton. Love that name, Cornbread Compton. <laughs> he's back there, name. he's shredding his mallets. <laughs> and Nate Lapine on keys. Tim, we were just talking uh, about this new record. Uh, you said you're not quite sure where the songwriting is going yet or in terms of what, what, that, what it all means, I guess. But there's obviously deep meaning in, uh, in a lot of the songwriting. The last three records have sort of been uh, concept records, for lack of a better term. There's always been kind of overriding themes that have uh, been in the records. And um, where did the notion that you wanted to sort of have these unified songs uh, begin? And secondly, uh, do you see your new album heading in that direction as well? Uh, yeah, it, I think that uh, every record we've done, uh, well, you know, the first two records, I guess, that was just compiling songs, but then from Domestica on, we were uh, trying to f- make a, find a way to unify the albums. I think that each album, these last three albums we've done, we actually go into them trying to not have them be so conceptualized, uh, but end up, we end up kind of going overboard with it. Because cause we, we, just because we get into the ideas, then we start wanting to craft it and you know, find a way to unify the album as much as possible. So do you find yourself uh, writing, setting a theme and writing with that theme in mind, or does this theme sort of emerge after, after the songs have been largely written? Yeah, I think it's the latter, and that's why we, start, we always start without concepts, uh, without themes, but then the themes kind of uh, you know, rear their head as the uh, songs all come together and... That's when I'm kind of guilty that once I rec- recognize the theme, then I'll gen- generally write the last three songs or so, uh, intentionally kind of finishing out the... Uh, the Tie album. it all up together. Yeah. If people don't know, Domestica was uh, essentially the chronicle of the end of a, of a relationship, a divorce. Um, the Happy Organ is kind of an intense period of self-reflection. Would that be a good way to sum it up? Or a little uh, bit of Dark Night of the Soul, soul-searching? Yeah, that sounds... Good. <laughs> <laughs> and Happy Hollow, which I thought was one of the finest albums, I know I named it one of the best albums of 2006, uh, was really extraordinary to me in, in the way it questioned God and religion and the, uh, the facades that people sometimes, you know, I'm a holy person and then maybe they're not doing that at all in their actions. Um, were each of these prompted by personal crises on your part? I mean, they're not happy concepts, Tim. Were you in, in, in a miserable place when you were writing these tunes or thinking about these things? No, I like, uh, I guess that's what I like. Uh, that's what I like to, it's the type of, uh, you know, literature I like to read and it's the type of film I like to watch and it's the type of music I like to listen to. So, no, it's not really, I guess, you know, they come from those places, but that's not really where... I dwell, or that's, or where any of us dwell. But that's, I just, I think that's just always the more interesting uh, topics to tackle are the ones that you have the hardest time dealing with yourself. Well, and there's been so much great uh, pop music written about, you know, I'm in love, Moon in June, right? But you know, to do, you think about the ones that really stand out that that talk to me. I think the first time I talked to you about Happy Hollow, you know, I mentioned. Um, God Only Knows by, by the Beach Boys was the first use ever that made it on the top 40 charts of the word God in a song. And, and something like Dear God by XTC, which is profound, but it's so catchy. And you don't even think, wait a minute, he's writing a letter to God and he's ticked off that God sends hurricanes and kills people. So, but, but that's audacious. To write about God on a, on a pop record is not, it's not phoning it in. <laughs> <laughs> we were really nervous you know, writing that record and we expected... a. To get a lot of heat from it, uh, we wanted to backpedal, I think, a few times while we were writing some of it out, but uh, stuck to it because it was important to us, and you know, we did 
offend people in some ways and I just don't think people are taking it the right way or they're just being too staunch about the religion if they couldn't listen to it with an open mind. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you too, I mean, in, in terms of getting deep into these subjects, it seems like when you do something, it's pretty much all out. Tim, I know that this band has kind of been, it hasn't been a continually ongoing concern over that period of time. There's been a couple of breaks in cursive where it may have looked maybe a, at least a couple times that the band wasn't going to continue. Hiatuses, breakups, whatever you want to call them. Was that part of the deal? Like, how far can you go before you have to come out and just say, wait a minute, I've got I to take some time off from, from this kind of thing? Uh, Matt's gotten to be the smartest about it, that he... Uh, I, I'm, guilty, I'm guilty of uh, breaking up the band after each record, and Matt kind of like <laughs> became savvy to that and uh, started calling him hiatuses because <laughs> he realized I was going to come back to it, uh, you know, that I just needed a break. So, Matt, what do you do? Just give him a little space, uh, or do you try to talk him out of it, or what, what, what do you... I just tell him to do whatever he wants, and uh, <laughs> don't make any decisions until it's certain. So, In your mind, Matt, has it been to the point where it, it felt like it was in peril, like, well, you know what, maybe that, maybe that was the last Cursive record, maybe it was that, that was the last Cursive tour? Yeah, I think we've gotten pretty comfortable with leaving it so up in the air that it's not really hard to get comfortable with walking away from it, like, especially after... Ugly Organ, you know, we were very comfortable with that being the last record. But times change, your opinion changes over time, and you're ready to play music again, and that's kind of what I think we keep returning to, so we've changed it to hiatuses instead of breakups. <laughs> yeah, the Ugly Organ was kind of a mis- mixed blessing. Uh, I mean, it, it, mo- it meant so much to so many of your listeners, so, m- so many fans. I mean, they love that record. Mm-hmm. But they keep wanting ugly organ parts two and three and four and five. Sure, yeah. And I think it caught us off guard, and that's kind of what drove us away from music, too. And definitely there's, been, there's plenty of pressure to, to write the same record again. That's the thing. Um, when you're at this level, uh, you've got such a fan base that wants a certain thing out of you. Uh, how do you sort of combat that? as a songwriter this record i hope will be a good example of how we combat that i'm trying to write what a 33 year old rock and roll guy would write about instead of uh writing what an 18 year old would write about um and that's why i'm not really sure what all of it means yet i don't because i think i'm trying to figure out Mm -hmm. i love the fact that i thought that 33 was was so old when i was young and (laughs) now (laughs) and i'm waiting to find out when i'm going to become an adult you know well it's an age fraught with symbolism you know, yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. know, JC yeah. only made it to 33. Lester yeah. Bangs died at 33. <laughs> <laughs> so be careful. It's interesting how you equated those two things, Lester <laughs> Bangs and Jesus Christ. Most yeah. important people of the yeah. you know, exactly. new millennium, right. Yeah. So tomorrow you are going in the studio, you are going to record. And, and what I, I'm hearing you say is that maybe a theme will emerge over the course of it. And if not, you're happy to just have a collection of songs. Yeah, no, I think it's there. I just, it's, it's awkward to talk about just yet because yeah. everything's so, all the ideas are so new. Oh, so there is a theme, but we don't yeah, know. Yeah, no, I think it's there. It's a, a lot about, a, I guess about, oh, I, guess I can't talk about it yet. I have, to, <laughs> I have to lay it all out and figure out what it means, and then I'll, yeah. That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you play us another song? Okay, sure. And, and what is it going to be, this, this since is, we don't, we this don't know any of this material? This song's called Donkeys. Probably one of the few on the record that's more, well, I don't even know if this is story-driven. Like I say, I'm very confused by this record, so I'm not sure what, what, how it all goes yet. But Cool. Okay. Cool. 
but the way you live so you play pretend but isn't it time you act your age you got a mortgage on your shoulder got a babe on the way you shrug it off with a jackass grin thinking once you clean up you're gonna do it again he says oh, oh, oh no I'm going to pleasure island I don't want to come home says beware he swears we're going to hell we may be donkeys but at least we have a tale to tell don't start the slap on the wrist i don't need no cease and desist i ain't fooling around and it ain't no sin so you best be stepping back those ugly ultimatums Never you mind what your old maid says There ain't nothing to complain so long as you're earning bread She's got a way of getting under your skin She plants a little seed of doubt the guilt blossoms She says, oh, 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 no If you're going to Pleasure Island, you can never come home Say no, you can't take a little nibble, you gotta lick the ball. from uh, Cursive here live in Omaha, Nebraska. This is a new album that's being recorded, and uh, about to, uh, you're about to go into the recording studio. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, there, there's sort of a, a sense of a community here in Omaha that maybe other independent music scenes don't have. Um, 
something that's been going on for about the last 15, 20 years, even though you guys are now, a number of you are living in different parts of the country. Do you feel that scene, that sense of a scene is still here in Omaha? Uh, obviously, a world-famous label now, Saddle Creek, that uh, emerged with this group of friends and a bunch of terrific bands. Is that, is that still here, or is it, uh, do you have that sense of community still? Yeah, I think it's very much here. I'm, I get a little uh, homesick and, I think, heartsick when I start, whenever, uh, whenever new albums come out by the younger uh, generation of bands, musicians. What is it? I mean, can you explain? There's so many uh, terrific songwriters that seem to be about the same age, <laughs> you know, roughly that same generation uh, that emerged late 80s, early 90s, and, and sort of grew up in the 90s and uh, enjoyed a lot of success. And, you know, you'll, you know, the songwriting just seems to be at, at a different level. Can you explain it at all? I do know. I, I know that just what we've always said is that we didn't compete at all. We we all grew up as friends as a community, and so uh, we we all we called it raising the bar. Somebody put out a record, and we'd all just love it. And so we felt like we had to, from then on out, have to write an album that's as good as that, or else we're not doing our part to, you know, to be part of what we loved as this like insulated. This so you. You'd hear a Bright Eyes song or a song by The Faint or something like that, and you go, we got to do at least as good as that. Uh, that's how I used to feel. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> now I just go ahead and let them write really great records, and I, you know, I just try to, to tune kind it of try, out. I'm just trying to stay afloat at this point. But. Um, we want to thank Cursive for being here so much. It's Tim, it's Matt, it's Ted, it's Cornbread. That's my favorite drummer name ever now. And Nate over there on keyboards. Thank you guys for doing this, especially at home uh, with KIOS from Omaha. Thank you, guys. Thank you. To hear bonus songs from our session with Cursive, including another unreleased track from their forthcoming album, go to our website at www.soundopinions.org. We'll be back with a review of Weezer's new album on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
That is a song called Pork and Beans from Weezer's new album, Weezer, on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Mr. Cod, if you're keeping track, this will be the third album titled Weezer in Weezer's 15-year career. The debut in 1994 came to be called the Blue Album. A decade later, we got the uh, the Green Album called Weezer, and now this one will probably be called the Red Album because it is very red on the cover. What is the band up to this time around, Greg? Rivers Como, who leads the group, is giving the other guys in the group a chance to write one song each, but mostly he's writing these tunes, and he's trying to get back to a way of songwriting that dominated the group's early career, in particular that debut album, where we have these complex multi-part suites. If you recall, the last album they gave us was much more of an arena rock affair. Three chords! big anthemic, you know, pound your feet on the ground at the stadium kind of songs. I think they're trying to get away from that this time out. Rick Rubin is back. He uh, produced that last album, Make Believe, in 2005. He's on some of the tracks here, but mainly they're working with Jackknife Lee, who uh, is best known for uh, working with U2 of late. So what do we get out of it? Let's play a tune here that I think is indicative of the album. It's called Heart Songs, and I really think that it is a sequel of sorts to a Song from that first Weezer, the Blue album in 1994. If you recall back then, they were singing about uh, being in the garage, getting together basically as a garage band to play songs in the garage. Here, Como is digging even deeper into his past, talking about the moment when he fell in love with pop music, sitting in the backseat of his parents' car, listening to tunes coming over the AM radio. It's called Heart Songs from Weezer's Weezer on Sound Opinions. But hippie songs could be good in our pad Eddie Rabbit sang about how much he loved a rainy night Abadivo, Benatar were there the day John Lennon died Mr. Springsteen said he had a hungry heart Over Washington was happy on the day he taught the chart These are the songs Heart Songs from the third self-titled Weezer album, the third self-titled album in a six-album career. Jim, you're absolutely right. Uh, Looking back to In the Garage from the debut record, there's a lot of looking back on this record. He's writing a lot from the perspective of his teenage years and uh, the aspirations that he had at that time and the fact that he wasn't fitting in and being a rock star, he was going to get his revenge on everybody else because he was going to be who he really wanted to be and nobody else could, could diss him then. Well, not for nothing has Rivers Como emerged as the <laughs> hero, the proto-emo, if you will. Absolutely. He's... You know, he, he gave rise to that movement with that first album, and especially the second one, Pinkerton, Pinkerton which yeah. has become a, a revered a record, even though it didn't sell at the time. 
mainly because he was so hard on sleeve in those records, especially Pinkerton, writing from a really emotional place about being a misfit. Lately, I think he's, you know, he's having a few yucks with that. He's, he's much more tongue-in-cheek. The songs have become a little more facile. As you mentioned, there was sort of a move towards more bombastic arena rock in recent years. On this record, the, the songwriting returns to the ambition that he showed on that first record. There are several multi-part songs on this record. What I'm having trouble with on this record, Jim, this is a 38-year-old guy. He's got a kid now. He's a married man. He's a multimillionaire rock star. And he's talking about, I hate my books and I hate school. And I don't see that emotional place in these lyrics. I, I want this guy to be talking about his life. He seems to be going through some kind of a midlife crisis, you know, at, at this point. Well, I don't know about <laughs> Talking it. about, you know, what it was like being a kid again and wanting to be in that place but writing from the emotional vantage point of a 16-year-old rather than a 38-year-old man. And uh, I, no, I think no, it's no, rather no, no. facile. No, no, no. I think, Greg, he's looking out at the pop landscape as it exists today, and he's wondering why he feels so disconnected from it. He's put out a single called Pork and Beans, which is purposely as inane as possible. He's making fun of having a pop hit, and he's invoking your pal Timbaland while he does it, right? What, should I hire producer Timbaland now? Greatest Man That Ever Lived, which I got to say is is incredible as a song construction. It breaks down into that uh, that drum crescendo, amazing stuff, Yeah, uh, is is intentionally mocking hip-hop braggadocio. He's got a bit of a, of, a, of a turn toward disco on Everybody Get Dangerous. But, man, the whole album, the whole price of admission for me is about heart songs. There's that wonderful scene in Cameron Crowe's film, Almost Famous, where the kid discovers the records that the sister has left for him under the bed, and he pulls them out, and he goes through them one by one, like yeah. these sacred artifacts. I think one of the hardest things to do in rock and roll, in song, is to portray the act of falling in love with music. And I think heart songs songs does that. I think it even betters in the garage on that first album. This is a song, Greg, about that magical thing, that elusive thing in the air that makes you fall in love with music. And and your whole world opens up. Right. And if, if Como only gave us that song, he has given us a piece of brilliance here. I mean, I, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. And the, the punchline is that it all builds up to this climactic moment when a roommate brings home this album with a baby on the cover and he plays it. And it's Nevermind by Nirvana. And he decides to form a band going into the garage. And, of course, Weezer winds up signed to Geffen. I, I I think he's looking back at a life that's been fascinating. He's trying to figure out where he fits today. And I think it's very emotional. And, and I, I just, this is a buy-it record. In fact, you need to buy, like, two or three copies. Uh, you know, you're going to give him a pass, too, on the fact that those uh, two other band members have songs in this record. There's three those are bad shared songs. vocals. <laughs> I mean, I can count three songs on this record that's that I can do without. Songs. That's three out of ten right there. Well, that's three out of ten, but that means seven great songs. And Heart Songs is so great it's worth like 20 i don't think there's i don't think the other seven river songs are that great oh, i no think they're way, pretty man. facile and you know I, I love like as i said the arrangements on those three songs but at best this is a burn it record no you're so wrong I don't know, Jim. I think you and Rivers have got a thing going on. But next week, we got a guest we can both agree on, and that is Dr. Lawrence Lessig. We want to bring back one of our favorite interviews of recent years because it's more timely than ever, the intersection of copyright law and music. And Dr. Lessig is arguably the foremost expert in the country on that subject. 
Absolutely, Greg. We have some thank yous to say to folks in Omaha. We had a splendid time visiting Nebraska. Dan Brennan out there recorded the cursive interview, and then we brought it back home here for Mary Gaffney to mix. The whole thing went down at a great club called The Waiting Room. And Keith Neisler and Molly Nicklin at KIOS-FM were our hosts. As always, the show has been produced here at home by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And we have a new intern named Dylan. His name I'll endeavor to remember. Oh, yeah. And we have our fearless leader, our executive producer, uh, definitely the fellow who we think is the greatest man who ever lived, Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. I'm in the phone booth, it's a one across the hall. messages hi there sound opinions this is taylor cole from wilmette illinois and uh even though this is a little bit of an old comment i've been listening to the podcast from two months ago you referred to mozart as mozart uh when we're talking about moby's gear for melody you said like mozart bach that there's a t in there that is not written but should certainly be pronounced mozart you can't disrespect the old guys like that Hey, Jimmy Drake, this is Margo from Minneapolis. I was listening to your show on Sunday night featuring our favorite summer songs, and I have the best summer song of all time. It's Somewhere Down That Crazy River by Robbie Robertson. I can see it now. The distant red neon shivered in the heat. I was feeling like a stranger in a strange land. You know where people play games with the night. Too hot to sleep. The song is the epitome of a hot and heavy summer night. You can literally feel the humidity when listening to this great rhythm of the song. Thanks so much. I listen to your show every Sunday evening on the current here in Minnesota, and it's a great way to wrap up the weekend. So take care. Hey, my name is Joe Frank, and I'm listening to your summer show, and you uh, cited Rex in effect. And um, I think that a good summer jam from last year samples Rex and Effect, but the MIA song, Paper Planes, samples Rex and Effect in the refrain, and also um, samples Straight to Hell by The Clash. MIA, third world democracy. Yeah, I got more records in the KGB. Anyway. Hope all is well. Sounds great. Bye. Hi, this is Tom from Cary, North Carolina. 1985. I was a young second lieutenant. Bombing around northern Italy in a BMW 520 with a beautiful blonde and listening to Katrina and the Waves singing Walking on Sunshine. And I can't think of any song that means summer better than this one. 
Love to hear it. Thanks. North Carolina. I really enjoy your show, but today you guys were crazy. When you were saying that the uh, Beach Boys song was about somebody's underwear, I have to tell you that when Brian Wilson wrote that song, he was not talking about underwear. This is almost like a, a freaking hip hop song. T-shirts, cutoffs, and a pair of thongs. We've been having fun all summer long. I never knew that in you know in the mid sixties the Beach Boys were singing the thong song. He was talking about ladies' sandals. It's not underwear. And for you guys to file for that, I don't know. But anyway, it gave me a good laugh, and we love you so. Keep up the good work. See you later. Bye. T-shirts, cutoffs, and a pair of No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.